The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate that. If you'll turn with me this morning to Psalm chapter 37, as we continue our look into the Psalms, selected Psalms, all Scripture is given by inspiration. All Scripture is expressly relevant for today. But sometimes there are passages of Scripture that just seem to grip us. And Psalm 37 is one of those books. It's one of those psalms that grips us today. So let's look to the Lord and let's see what he has for us this morning. Father, this morning I'd ask that you just rivet our hearts on your word. I ask that your Holy Spirit would have complete liberty to lead us and guide us in the truths that you have for us today. We know Psalm 37 is so relevant, it's so powerful, it's so packed full of amazing verses and truths. And so I pray that you would just fill us with your spirit and lead us into particularly those areas that each one of us needs this morning. And we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 37, verses 1 through 4. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Skip down to verse 10. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, an important principle about Bible study is the understanding of progressive revelation. Progressive revelation means that a doctrine or truth that's introduced in an earlier part of the Bible is explained in more detail as the, as the passages unfold. An idea, example of this in the Bible is the doctrine of, of death, what takes place after death. Ideas of death are rudimentary in the Old Testament, but they were not fully understand until after Jesus died and the scriptures unfolded what is to take place and wait for us. The same is true of the doctrine of the atonement. Salvation by substitution was taught in the Old Testament, but it was not fully understood and explained until after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Yet, there are some Old Testament passages that work the other way. An Old Testament passage sometimes expounds on a New Testament verse more fully, and Psalm 37 is a case in point. 
The 11th verse of this psalm has to do with meekness, and it's quoted by Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, and he used it as one of the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 5 said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That teaching is not explained by Jesus, and particularly not in the Sermon on the Mount, but it is what Psalm 37 is all about. So it's right to say that Psalm 37 is an exposition of the third beatitude, even though it was written a thousand years before Jesus' birth. It unfolds the character of meekness in the face of the apparent prosperity of the wicked. Therefore, the message is highly relevant for you and I today. Now, another amazing truth about this particular psalm is the amazing verses that we all cling to. For example, verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Verse 5, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Verse 16, Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. And then verse 25, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. Now, verse 25 establishes this psalm as one of mature wisdom. If David wrote this book as the title says he did, it's apparent that it was written in his old age. It was written after a lifetime of experience of how God deals with the righteous and the wicked and how God works in their lives. And because of that, this psalm is extremely relevant to you and I, and it ought to be taken very seriously. Now, give me an example of what I mean. When you consider David, here is this amazing man. We find him in his young age, tending sheep for his father, and he gets called into the house one day, and the prophet anoints him to be king. Now, David doesn't jump up and down and go, whoopee, I'm the king. All you brothers bow down to me and get all excited. No, he simply walks back out to the field and picks up where he left off tending sheep. He writes amazing psalms about his relationship with God and how God is so in tune with him and he with God and his love for God. And then later on, we find him being sent by his father to bring food to his brothers who are arrayed with the Israelite army on one side of the valley and the Philistines on the other side of the valley. And here this giant comes down to challenge them and nobody's doing anything about it. And David's godly perspective says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the armies of the living God? He didn't say Saul's army. He didn't say Israel's army. He said the army of the living God. He had a right perspective, a right heart, and a right understanding. And so, as you know, he himself goes out with a few stones and a sling, and he slews Goliath, takes Goliath's sword, and chops his head off. And from then on, he moves on to be a great conqueror and leader. They sing songs about him. Saul has slayed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. He is an absolute amazing picture of character and strength. And then one day, he looks on a roof and sees Bathsheba. 
and his heart burns with lust. And he takes her and he commits adultery. And then he changes the army plans and gets her husband sent to the front lines, hoping he'll be killed to cover it up. David has experienced the most amazing mountaintop of righteousness, but the greatest deep depths of sin in the valley. And when David says, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, you and I need to pay very careful attention of what he's saying. Because here is a man who has lived through ups and downs. He's experienced almost everything possible. And when he speaks, you and I ought to listen. A man after God's own heart, but yet falling flat on his face. Can anybody relate? This is a man we need to pay close, close attention to. Now, because this book, this psalm is so packed, I'm going to divide it into two weeks. So we're only going to take the first half this morning, and then we'll finish it up next week. But I want to begin the way the book, the, the, the psalm begins, with a quiet spirit. The first 11 verses are the most direct exposition we have had of the third beatitude. They describe the quiet spirit of one who trusts in God, does not fret because of evil men. And the note is struck right at the beginning with verses 1 and 2. It says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Now the word fret not literally means don't get heated. Don't get all worked up. Don't get bent out of shape. Don't get all unnerved. And it's important enough because he mentions it in verse 1, 7, and 8. So it's a reoccurring theme that you and I need to get down. But let's be honest. How do we do this? How are we to remain cool when we see evil prospering? especially when they seem to prosper at the expense of the truly righteous, as in this case. The beatitude says the meek will inherit the earth, but it seems uh, to us that the ungodly get it all. Nice guys finish last. So how can we not fret? How can we not get all unnerved when we see the wicked prospering? Well, Verses 3 through 11 give us two answers to those questions. Number one, we are to look up. And number two, we are to look ahead. The most important answer is to get our eyes off the wicked and including getting them off ourselves and get our eyes on the Lord. More than that, we are to trust him and commit our ways to him. Now, I suppose there's hardly a place in all the Bible better suited than these verses to teach us how to live godly lives and grow in the love and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, which is our goal in the first place. So there are five things that we find that you and I can apply in this situation. Number one, trust in the Lord. Verse three, trust is Faith. It is the proper starting point for all right relationships with God. Yet, as always, faith is not merely passive, but active, and not merely God-related, but related to others. And this is why the verse continues, and do good. Look at verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. 
dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. In other words, make faithfulness your bosom buddy. Make faithfulness the focus of your life. Make faithfulness the very thing that gets you up in the morning, gets you through the day, and gets you to bed at night. Make it your friend. And this means that the person who is quietly trusting God will experience the life and power of God in his or her life. And this life will translate into our living out and doing good to others. So when you teach about faith as a channel of justification... There is never any justification without regeneration, and the one who has been regenerated will necessarily live out their life. In other words, although we are not saved by works, but rather saved by grace through faith, faith will inevitably express itself in right conduct. Therefore, we will do good. Trust involves personal commitment to God just as marriage involves personal commitment of the two partners. God has committed himself to us. Have you committed yourself to him? Are you holding up your end of the commitment? Number two, we're to delight in the Lord, verse four. Before people are converted, they have a warped view about God. They see God as this hard-nosed, legalistic thing that, yo, you just, you just have to be good. You can't have any fun. And who, who wants to live like that? But the truth is entirely different. The fact that God will come and raise us up and save us, he becomes our delight. He is holy to be sure. He is also sovereign, exalted, the awesome God the Bible everywhere pictures him to be. He cannot be taken lightly. But in addition to understanding those incontrovertible truths, the one truth that we find is that he is the total source of our delight. For he is the perfection of grace and compassion and mercy and kindness and patience and love. He is, in other words, like Jesus. And the better we know him, the more we experience who he really is. And we learn to delight in him. So the promise of this verse is that when you and I delight in God, he gives us the desires of our heart. Now, what exactly does that mean? When you delight in the Lord, he gives you the desires of his heart. It literally means that he changes your heart to want what he wants. And as you go through life, the greatest desire of your life and the greatest desire of God's life are in perfect harmony. So when you delight in him, he literally gives us his heart. Our heart's desire becomes his. Now maybe I can explain this a little better by using the covenant of marriage. In the Old Testament, in the Jewish times, As you know, the couples were betrothed to each other. There was no going out and dating around until you found the right girl, the right guy, and decided to get married. Parents got together and they said, you want him? You want her? Done. They put the deal together. And when they became the marrying age, they got married. Now, I'm sure in most cases, there wasn't a whole lot of what we would call love. It was a contract. It was a commitment. 
They delighted each other in each other. They delighted themselves in each other. And as the marriage grew, the relationship grew and flourished. When you come to Christ, you may be really excited the fact that you've just been saved from hell. But I guarantee you, you really don't understand what it means to love God. That grows with your relationship. Now let's fast forward to the New Testament in the way of marriage today. Because God uses the marriage as a picture of Christ in his church. And so he commands husbands, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, I always touch on this in marriage counseling and I always bring it into the actual ceremony, but think about this. Men, you are to love your wife just as Christ loved you. And how did Christ love you? Sacrificially. In other words, your home is not your castle. It's your Calvary. You come to Christ, you delight in him. When you marry your wife, your goal, man, is to put her first. It's to raise her up. It's to encourage her in all that she does, to make her a success, to fulfill her. That's your role. Now, that may sound a little one-sided at the beginning, but the wife, while not commanded to love her husband, oddly enough, is commanded to reverence her husband. And you know what that teaches us? When the wife sees the husband fulfilling his role and raising her up and encouraging her, her natural response is to reverence him. In other words, she honors his part of the contract. And so she grows in her love for him, and the two of them grow in a beautiful, mutually submission picture that Christ calls the church. So when you and I delight in the Lord, we're literally giving ourselves over to him to lead us and guide us as the picture of the husband and wife is. And that relationship grows over a lifetime or however long we live into a deep, abiding honorable, submissive relationship. And that's what it means to delight in the Lord. It's a very powerful illustration. We grow to want him and he gives us himself in everything we do. Number two, we're to commit our ways to the Lord. Verse five. Naturally, this would follow the promise of verse four. And the command to commit our ways to God is not redundancy, but actually carries us further in showing what the means to live with God from whom we trust and whom we delight. The word actually means to roll one's way onto God. In other words, it's a picture of carrying a heavy weight on your back and you come to Christ and you just roll it over onto him for him to take care of. That's committing our ways unto God. And this is what the Apostle Peter was thinking about and probably referring to Psalm 35 or 37 verse 5 when he wrote in 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Some of your uh, translations say, he, or some of your translations say casting all your cares upon him. The point is, Whatever you came in with here this morning that's stressing you, 
roll it over on him and let him deal with it. You know, so often we come to God and we're struggling. We get down on our knees and say, Lord, I've got this problem. I don't know what to do with it. I give it to you to take care of. And then we get up and take it right with us. We need to understand what it means to give it over to him and walk in peace while he deals with our situation. Number four, be still before the Lord. Verse seven. Blaise Pascal, who was a French mathematician and Christian philosopher in the 1600s, he wrote this, quote, the basic thing that is wrong with the world is that man does not know how to stay quiet in his own room. End of quote. It's a good thought expressed in a humorous language. But the fourth step in the life of, a, of the godly who trusts God goes beyond simply being quiet. It is to be still before God. It's to wait for God. Look at verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. You and I struggle to be quiet because we have no time in our day to be quiet. We get up in the morning at the very last minute. We rush off to work. We work all day. We come home, eat dinner. We've got plans for the evening. It's just go, 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 go. And if we do relax, we usually relax the way we want to relax. It says, be still before the Lord. Wait patiently and quit worrying. Now think of those three things. That's the recipe that he gives us. As we go on in this study of Psalm 37, we're going to see how important waiting really is. And this is because the psalmist's ultimate answer to the problem of the prosperity of the wicked as that their end has not yet come. The wicked will be brought down and the godly will be lifted up in God's time. Look, the wicked that drive you crazy, the wicked you read about, all the things that happen, they're going to get theirs. Because the Bible says that. So why don't we as Christians... Commit them to the Lord. Knowing full well what's coming, instead of scathing them and scolding them and saying how awful they are, how about getting down on our knees and crying out for mercy for them? And turn anger into love. Turn frustration into victory. And start storming the gates of people and never stop until their lives are changed or they fall into what God is doing. And so it is absolutely critical that you and I grasp the next point. Refrain from anger, verse 8. This is most certainly anger against God, but whether it's against God or some person who has wronged you, particularly against ourselves, it is a mark of the godly person that he or she is able to maintain a settled, calm frame of mind trusting God. Look at verse 8. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. In other words, fretting leads to poor choices, and poor choices wind up producing evil. That's why we're told to turn the other cheek. 
That's why we're told to be patient. Because what happens when you get worked up over something? You don't think so clearly. And that's what the psalmist wants us to avoid. So this naturally brings us to the next set here, and that's understanding the future. The second answer to how we are to remain calm when the wicked prosper is part of what I have already been saying. We have been told that we're to look up, but now we're told to look ahead. Because if we do, we will see that those who do evil only flourish for a time, but their day is coming when they will be brought down, while the people of God will be lifted up. Look at verses 9 through 11. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. It's hard for most of us to take the long view because we are so consumed with the present. But we need to do it if we're going to understand what's going forward. One of the greatest things that you and I need to do is to have a working understanding of the future because it will radically change your life today. When you understand that the Bible says that the Lord is coming for us. And if we're still alive when he comes, it says that the dead in Christ and rise and know that those that remain will be caught up in the air to ever be with the Lord. We will be with him. We will go before the judgment seat, not for sin, but the Bema seat where rewards are handed out for what we've done. We will then have the marriage supper of the Lamb where that marriage will be consummated with the Lord. We'll come back with him at the second coming to rule and reign. All of these things that are taking place while many scholars differ on a point here, a point there, the reality is he's coming for you and I. And if we know the future, it will radically change today. This is why in the men's Bible study, they're going through the book of Joel, the day of the Lord, understanding as these things unfold. It's not just to know what's coming. It is to change your life today. And that's what's so important for all of us to really grasp. Now, interestingly, we turn to this topic of meekness. What does it mean to be meek? I mean, when I think of meekness, I, I think of some guy cowering in the corner, never says anything, very shy. That's not at all what it is. And let me give you an example that might shed light on what meekness really is. And let me take it from the life of Moses, because it will really help us to understand meekness here in Psalm 37. The example comes from Numbers chapter 12. Numbers 12 verse 3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Man, that doesn't sound like Moses, does it? I remember Moses murdering an Egyptian because he was abusing the people of Israel. I remember the stories of him when he went to Midian, driving out poachers and robbers. How is Moses meek? Well, the story goes like this. When Moses had escaped from Egypt, he went to Midian where he settled down and married a woman named uh, Zephora, the daughter of the priest of Midian. And Zephora was also of the stock of the Jewish nation. But by the time the events of Numbers 12 unfold, she's passed away, and Moses had married a Cushite woman. 
The point of the story lies in the fact that Cush was the ancient name for Ethiopia, and so his second wife was Ethiopian. And this was a major offense to Aaron and his sister Miriam. And Miriam got particularly heated and launched a rebellion. Numbers 12.2 says, And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. And he was displeased. And so he calls Miriam and Aaron to meet with him at the tent of meeting. And God reiterated his choice of Moses to be the leader of the people and rebuked Moses' offended siblings. And then he pronounced a judgment on Miriam, frighteningly appropriate to her injustice or her prejudice. Numbers 12, 9 through 10. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And when the cloud was removed over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. In other words, God said to Miriam, you're offended because Moses married a black woman. You're brown, and she's dark, so lighter is better than dark. Why not be white and see what it's like? See how you like it. The point was made. But Aaron petitioned Moses to stand in and, and, and go before the Lord. And Moses interceded and God did heal, heal Miriam. But what was Moses doing during this experience? His wife was insulted and displeased. His authority was challenged. Did he fight back? Did he try to vindicate himself? No. And that is why he is called a meek man. Moses did exactly what we find here in Psalm 37. He trusted God. He delighted himself in God. He committed his way to God. He was still before the Lord. And he refrained from anger. And God vindicated him. This is not weakness, but true strength. Because the same man who had committed his way to God is also the same man who is able to stand before Pharaoh and demand his people be let go. Moses was not weak, not by any stretch. He was strong because he trusted God and he let God be God. The same is true of Jesus Christ. Meekness was one of the great characteristics of Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 23, Peter says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Meekness will take off its shoes before the burning bush, but stand strong before the powers of the world. Meekness is absolute power under perfect control. And that, my friends, is why the meek inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5. Then we find the wicked will fall. The second section of this psalm, verses 12 to 20, describe the way of the wicked, much like we saw in Psalm 1. In fact, from here to the end of this psalm, 
nearly every verse mentions either wicked or righteousness or both. Look at number one. The wicked plot against the righteous, but the Lord laughs at them. Look at verse 12 through 13. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Now, we don't often think of the Lord laughing, especially at wickedness. And it is right that we don't, since laughter usually means that someone is taking the matter lightly. But the laughter in verse 13 is like Psalm 2, which says the Lord scoffs at those who think they're going to get their way above his. God laughs at the wicked scornfully because he knows their appointed destinies. And that leads us into number two. The wicked draw their own weapons against the righteous, but they will fall by their own weapons. Look at verse 14 and 15. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Here's a fact you need to know. Sin carries the seed of its own destruction in itself. Evil empires can endure for a time by their own brute strength, but in the end, their corruption will weaken them and bring them down. And it's true of individuals as well. Who can forget the statement of Pogo, we have met the enemy and it is us. You know, I used a few, well, maybe last year or so in a message, this illustration. I think Mike used it in his message too. But it really bears up right here. It's the parable of the scorpion and the frog. You remember that? Mr. Scorpion goes down to the shore, to the river, and he needs to get to the other side of the river, and he doesn't know how to get across, but he sees old Mr. Frog sunbathing on the side of the, the river. And so he goes over and he says, hey, Mr. Frog, how about letting me climb on your slimy back and take me to the other side of the river? I need to get over there. And Mr. Frog says to Mr. Scorpion, oh, no way. You'll sting me and I'll die. There's no way you're getting on me. And he goes, oh, come on, Mr. Frog. I got to get to the other side. I won't sting you. He goes, no, no, no. He said, you'll get on my back. We'll get halfway across the river and you'll sting me and I'll die. And Mr. Scorpion says to Mr. Frog, now, come on. You're not using that pea-sized brain of yours. If we get halfway across the river and I sting you, you will die. But so will I because I'm a scorpion and I can't swim. So Mr. Frog thinks about it. He goes, yeah, it makes sense. All right, hop on. And so they're halfway across the river. And sure enough, he scorpion stings the frog. Now they're going down for the third time. And Mr. Frog says to Mr. Scorpion, are you kidding me? I'm going to die, but you're going to die too. Why on earth did you do this? And Mr. Scorpion says to Mr. Frog, because I'm a scorpion, and that's what scorpions do. Sin carries within itself the seed of its own destruction. Remember that. Number three, the wealth and power of the wicked will be taken away, but God will sustain the righteous. Verse 16 through 17. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken. But the Lord upholds the righteous, 
these last two points are gonna take special faith on the part of God's people since fulfillment of these promises often take considerable time. Yet those who have trusted God over time will testify this. David said in verse 25, I have been young and now I'm old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken or all his children begging bread. When you come to Christ and trust Christ, you will be delivered. Mark it down. And this isn't some preacher saying this. It's the word of God. Number four, the righteous will survive days of uh, deprivation, but the wicked will perish. Verses 18 and 19. The Lord knows the days of uh, the Lord knows the days of the blameless, <clears throat> and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they shall abound, have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like the smoke. They vanish away. The text clearly states that though the wicked flourish. They will vanish, vanish like smoke. Those who claim to be the beautiful, the beautiful flowers will one day, like flowers, vanish into dust. Those who do evil, those who do the will of God will prosper. Those who do evil will not. Psalm 1 verse 3 says, He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does will prosper. And who could forget Psalm 1-6? For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Are you looking up? Are you looking ahead? So what's the answer to the present wickedness we see all around. One, one commentator put it this way, quote, why should morality be adopted when it is self-evident that the wicked person seems to get along fine without it? In the short run, the wicked seem to prosper, whereas the righteous very often seem to suffer at their hands. But it is the longer run that counts. And in the long run, the only true satisfaction is to be found in the righteousness, which is the hallmark of the one who lives in relationship with the living God, end of quote. Are you delighting in the Lord this morning? Are you trusting him? Have you made that commitment to him? Are you walking every day in full obedience for him so he can guide and direct your path and so that you can be confident in the face of difficult times? Be patient, be vigilant, but above all, trust God who has ordered your days and who is leading you and who desires, who desires to lead you into the glorious victory of righteousness. He is the one who has laid it out for us. You and I need to just surrender. Are you committed this morning? Let's pray. Father, we come to you in total humility, in total obedience of hearts that struggle, 
we have to admit straight up that we do struggle to trust you at times. But as the Psalm 37 has laid out for us, you have our backs. You died to secure us for eternity. And you live, you live to guide us in that perfect truth because we have been adopted into your family. We're not no longer ours, but we've been bought with a price. We've been grafted in. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. But so often we just leave so much on the table because we just don't honor our commitment. Lord, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as their savior, that they would not leave without coming and talking to us and letting us show them how they can be assured of eternity with you. And if there are any Christians here this morning struggling with this whole area of commitment, they just try to do life on their own, struggling to be what they should be, God, open their hearts and pour your spirit alive into them to raise them up and know the truth that's there for us. That when you increase and we decrease, the only result is the delighting of a spirit-filled life. I pray that we would commit to you in a new way this morning and give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. God bless.